Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is a priest of the Ukrainian Catholic Eparchy of Chicago. Father David Anderson studied under Father Alexander Schmemann at St. Vladimir's Seminary and was ordained in 1983. In addition to serving as a parish priest for 37 years, he has been both a teacher and translator of patristic and Byzantine liturgical texts. He has presented many classes on liturgy and the Church Fathers throughout the country and is also one of our professors for our Magdal Apostolate Sisters. He is presently the Byzantine Rite Chaplain at Wyoming Catholic College. Father David, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Thank you so much, Kelsey, and it's a pleasure to see you once again. Let's pray together in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of all blessings and giver of life, come dwell within us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O gracious Lord, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our subject this evening, as I think you know, is uh, to speak of, as, as I said already, the royal martyrs, the royal Romanov martyrs, the royal house of the Russian Empire. And these specifically would be the following, the Tsar Nicholas and his Tsarina Alexandra, their children, Olga, Tatiana, Mary, and Anastasia, and their son, the Tsarevich, uh, Alexis. Together with the, the Tsar's family, there's also the Tsarina Alexandra's sister, Elizabeth, the Grand Duchess, who, who now on, on, the, on July 4th, July 4th, 1918, the Tsar and his family were murdered brutally by Bolsheviks in the city of Yekaterinburg. In, in uh, you see, if you look at the map of Russia, just beyond the Urals. Uh, and on the day after that, uh, the Grand Duchess Elizabeth also was killed with one of one of uh, her uh, nun companions, and this was a, all of all of the murders were carried out with great brutality. But especially the uh, Grand Duchess Elizabeth, who had who had after her conversion to Orthodoxy and becoming part of the Russian royal family, become a nun and and a nun that of a type that had not been not much of had been seen in Russia. What we would say, although the Eastern churches, whether those in communion with Rome or not in communion with Rome, uh, did not have, uh, at least as part of what was uh, inherent to their tradition, uh, a, the existence of various religious orders with various apostolates. There were simply monks and nuns. Now, in some of the Eastern Catholic churches, there was a kind of imitation of some of the, and still is, some of the religious orders of the West, but uh, the Grand Duchess Elizabeth began what we would call, she would never have called it this, but what we would have called an active community of nuns that uh, gave, their, uh, gave their energy to taking care uh, of the poor and the sick. So uh, nursing, teaching, and, and caring for uh, the hungry. So uh, her, uh, her murder at the hands of the Bolsheviks was an, a, a especially dark and evil, obviously evil incident. Now, uh, as a result of this, from the time of the murder of the royal family, there have been those within the Orthodox Church and their numbers increased over the decade, over the decades, 
who wished to have the royal martyrs, as we as they are called now, uh, declared to be martyrs and entered into the uh, calendar of the Church of Saints in the Orthodox Church. Now, this took some time to happen. Uh, there were the usual now the process of, of canonization in in the Orthodox churches is not quite as developed as it is in in the Catholic Church uh, with with the declaration of someone to be a servant of God or venerable, the careful examination of their life in a positio, then then a miracle, then beatification, then another miracle, then canonization. Uh, now the features of all of these aspects of the process in the West are there in the East, but they don't necessarily follow an exact pattern so much. But certainly the claim uh, for uh, miraculous favors and healings being granted through the intercession of the royal martyrs, as they are called, was there all through uh, the 20th century and continues on into the 21st. The Russian Orthodox Church of course, as, as I think uh, all of you know, to a certain extent, along with all of, of the churches of Eastern Europe underwent a terrific martyrdom, great suffering and martyrdom because of Soviet communism. And uh, perhaps I, I can say without exaggeration that, that the church of which I'm, of which I'm a priest, the Ukrainian, uh, Greek Catholic Church suffered most of all because uh, the Ukrainian Catholic Church was declared to be out of existence by the Soviet Union uh, for uh, decades, uh, from 1946 until the 1990s, when it when it finally came out of the catacombs. So, although Roman Catholics, Latin Rite Catholics, and and the Orthodox not in communion with Rome all suffered terribly under the Bolsheviks, uh, the, the Byzantine Catholic churches, the Greek Catholic churches of Eastern Europe had a particular, a particularly intense form of suffering in having their very church structure declared to not exist anymore, along with the extermination of their hierarchy and so many of their clergy. So overall in Eastern Europe and, and uh, and in Russia, great, great suffering. Now, as a result of what happened, of course, the, the Russian Orthodox Church in the former Russian Empire is now being persecuted viciously by the Soviets. And as a result of that, there was a very considerable emigration from Russia, both to Western Europe, uh, first to the Baltic republics, which were not then under Soviet rule after the revolution in 1917, uh, Estonia and Latvia and so forth. Uh, then uh, Germany, then France, a huge uh, uh, population of Russia, Russians emigrated to, to France, especially to, uh, to one particular part of Paris. And then eventually uh, from there further west to, to America. And then another wave of, of emigrants uh, fleeing the persecution came through China, which of course was not communist China uh, before 1949 and then uh, and settled in China, but then had to flee when the uh, Marxist yoke came to China as well. Now, many of the Russian Orthodox believers uh, in that emigrant church were part of what was called then the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. Sometimes it was called simply the Russia, Russian Synodal Church, the Synod, meaning the Synod of Bishops that, that did not recognize the present authority of the church in Russia because they were convinced that it was completely controlled by the Soviet government. And there is a very strong case to be made for that, of course. Uh, so this, this group, or sometimes this group is also called Russian Church in Exile. So this is the first group of Russian Orthodox that formally canonized the royal martyrs. Of course, the church in Russia, which was certainly pressured and persecuted by the Soviet state, was in no position to, to canonize the royal family. But after that uh, control, of 
the Russian Orthodox Church by the Soviet state ended in the 1990s and the Russian church was free again, one of the first things that they did was, was to give a second canonization, this time of the church in Russia, to the, uh, to the, uh, the cult, as we call it, cultists in the traditional sense, of, of the royal martyrs. And so now the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, all of it together, uh, has has agreed upon this canonization of the royal martyrs, and therefore all of all of the churches in communion with the Russian Orthodox Church uh, therefore have accepted the Russian royal martyrs into their calendar as well. I'm not sure about the Greeks, but uh, uh, in general, however, canonizations of one Orthodox Church are recognized by uh, the others. Now. Therefore, one of our tasks this evening, there's a number of, of things that, that we should reflect upon at, uh, to help us understand this, this phenomenon and, and these people. Now, as I said, uh, I, I do not have personally strong uh, mm, opinions, I guess I should say, because what we are speaking of tonight our theological opinions. We are not speaking of matters of doctrine in, in, from, our, from our Catholic uh, viewpoint. Now that's not to say that, that uh, we do not recognize the canonizations of the Eastern Church as not in communion with Rome because to a certain extent we do. Just as the Catholic Church uh, recognizes the Orthodox churches, e even though they do not share communion with the Church of Rome. Nevertheless, we regard them as Catholics, as apostolic churches with true sacraments, and therefore with true saints. And in fact, there are saints that are venerated in the calendars of the Eastern Catholic churches who lived after a time when the schism between East and West was pretty much fully in place. So for I can give you some examples. For example, uh, St. Sergius of Radonezh, one of the greatest of the Russian saints, 14th century Russian monastic, renewal of monastic life in Russia is honored both by the Russian Orthodox, not, not presently at communion with, in Rome, but also by the Eastern Catholic churches too. Uh, St. Stephen of Perm, another one uh, contemporary with uh, St. Sergius, a great missionary. We often forget, by the way, uh, I remember uh, having, this is long ago, my goodness, this would be in the 1970s. So I was, I was a, you know, a kind of a cocky college kid at that time. And having a conversation with with an Irish priest about, about the Eastern churches and orthodoxy. And he, he said in a kind of superior manner, well, there, there's one aspect that I, I just cannot see anything uh, in the Eastern churches to be impressed about. And that is that they have seemed to do nothing as far as missionary effort goes. And I said, well, Father, ha have you not considered that geographically, the largest portion of planet Earth to be evangelized is the expanse of Siberia. And who do you suppose did that? I'm, I, it was not missionaries from Ireland, Belgium, or Germany, I assure you. It was Russian missionaries in the second millennium, and in fact, uh, beginning from the 14th century onwards. So there's, there is often all of these misunderstandings. And, and uh, for, for example, in the Eastern Catholic churches, I, I, I know of one church whose patronal saint is Saint Seraphim of Sarov, the 18th century beloved ascetic of Russia, who, who uh, was not certainly in communion with the Church of Rome. The latest uh, canonization in the Church of Armenia was of an Armenian Orthodox priest and, and of heroic virtue. And this canonization is recognized by Orthodox and Catholics alike. So uh, with the genuineness, the authenticity of the Eastern churches, even, even though not sharing perfect communion with Rome, there come the saints as well. 
So now there is no, at this point, there isn't any recognition on the part of, uh, to my knowledge, of any Catholic, uh, any of the particular Catholic churches of the canonization of the uh, Romanov martyrs, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't come. So we have to look at this in a uh, somewhat of an, an historical and theological scriptural context. You know, I, I normally when I give talks, it's about the early church and, and the fathers and the early liturgy. And so one might think that I would be hard put to it to try to make some connections there, but I shall attempt to do so. Uh, one, one thing that we do witness throughout the, the history of the church is that certainly there are monarchs who are recognized as martyrs. Quite a list of them, actually. Uh, let's, let's consider a few. There's uh, King, King Edwin and one of the King Edwards in England. There is King Canute of, uh, of Denmark, king and martyr. There is, uh, I, and I, I'm happy to mention him because I, I have uh, uh, Slavic Byzantine Catholic heritage on one side of my family, but on the other side, the Anderson part is Norwegian. And there's St. Olaf of Norway, king and martyr. There is the beloved Prince Wenceslaus or Václav of the Czechs, martyr. There are the in in the uh, in Kievan Rus now Kievan Rus of course is those Eastern Slavs who were evangelized by two generations later from Saint Cyril and Methodius so Saint Cyril and Methodius in the uh, eighth or ninth century were sent by a patriarch Saint Photius of Constantinople with the blessing of the Pope. I think it was Pope Adrian the something at, 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 at that time, uh, to, go, to go evangelize the Moravians in what would today be the Czech Republic. They were invited there by the Prince of the Moravians. And these were a, a Slavonic speaking people. So Cyril and Methodius brought them, the story is uh, a little has gotten a little bit inflated over the centuries. So now people often hear that they brought to them the entire Bible and all the scriptures translated from Greek into Slavonic. Well, it started more humbly than that, actually. They brought them the Psalter, the Gospel of St. John, and, and the, those portions of the church services that were considered most essential at the time in, in Slavonic, and then more followed later. So St. Cyril Methodius started in Central Europe in today what would be the Czech Republic. The generation of missionaries that followed in their path went down to the Balkans and, and evangelized the people around Lake Ohrid uh, in, in what today would be Bulgaria and Albania. And then the generation after that went, went further north and then east to the Slavs of Kievan Rus who were the ancestors of uh, three uh, Slavic peoples today. The first would be the Russians, second would be the Ukrainians, and the third would be the people who are called Rusins or, or Carpatho-Rusins sometimes. These are the people from whom I'm descended on my mother's side. So uh, in that great baptism of the Eastern European Slavs, just two days from now in the in the Byzantine Catholic churches, in the Russian Orthodox Church as well, will be the Feast of Saint Vladimir, the Prince, the Great Prince of Kiev, and also given the title of uh, Enlightener of the Rus, because it's, it's with the baptism of Saint Vladimir that the conversion of these Eastern European Slavic peoples begin. And uh, I'm, we're speaking of royal martyrs, uh, Vladimir's two sons, uh, Romanus and David, were their baptismal names, but their original Slavic names were Boris and Gleb, uh, also are, are called both martyrs and passion bearers in the calendars of the Eastern churches. And what happened to them was that their older brother, Sviatopolk, 
after Prince Vladimir died, after living an exemplary Christian life following his conversion. Uh, but the older brother thought that he would, would seize all of the kingdom of Kiev for himself and, and so decided to eliminate his two younger brothers. And all of, these, all of these three brothers were what we would call now Viking princes. They all had their armies. Yet uh, both Boris and Gleb or Romanus and David refused to fight their elder brother saying we will not take part in a fratricidal war in, against our, our elder brother for Christ has, has taught us in the gospel that we must not resist evil in this way with more evil, with more violence. It's a remarkable response for Viking princes in the 10th century, don't you think? And as a result, of course, Boris and Gleb were killed by the army of their older brother. And the people, the newly baptized people of Kievan Rus, uh, uh, demanded actually that they be enrolled in the calendar of the saints. Now, of course, Kievan Rus was still a missionary land and the bishops came from, from the Eastern Roman Empire, as we call it now the Byzantine Empire, they're Greeks. And so they said, well, we can't declare them to be saints. They don't fit any category of saints. They're not really martyrs, the bishop said, because they didn't die for the faith, really. Uh, they didn't die because they were because their older brother was trying to force them to renounce Christianity. Their older brother was formally a Christian too. And so they're not martyrs, they're not ascetics, they're not bishops or confessors. They, we don't have any, we don't have any sanctoral slot to put them in. And the people of the Church of Kiev and Russia said, Oh, yes, you do. We'll tell you what it is. They are bearers of Christ's passion because they imitated Christ in his sufferings and would not return evil for evil and hatred for hatred. And the, the pressure in this case of the laity was so great that the Greek bishops of Rus uh, agreed. And Boris and Gleb were numbered among the saints. Their feast is next week, July 24th. And with the title, both passion bearers and martyrs and martyrs. So we have these royal martyrs. There's nothing new about that. And if we looked at all of the cases that I mentioned, we would see that they were not as uh, in the way that we associate with the death of someone whom we hear spoken of as a martyr. They were not uh, said, they were not told deny Christ or we'll kill you. Rather, they were in situations where the gospel either was first being preached or there was struggle between clans of, of, of various peoples. But they chose in, in, in various ways to follow the teachings of Christ in the gospel, especially on the, in the Sermon on the Mount and, and uh, gave their life, gave their life. And so the church does recognize them as martyrs. If you look, no matter what liturgical books you're looking in, whether it's the Roman Missal or whether it's the Byzantine service books, you'll see these royal saints uh, numbered among the martyrs. So there is nothing new about that. But that is not the only uh, subject for our consideration of the Romanov martyrs this evening because we have to try to put this in a, as I said, a scriptural and patristic context as well. And to do that, we have to ask the question, a question that does not come so easily to, uh, particularly to Americans. Uh, Americans have a kind of Odd, odd reaction to, to the, the whole thought of monarchy. On the one hand, you know, the United States began with a uh, disassociation with monarchy. Uh, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, many Americans continue to show a fascination with monarchies outside the United States, particularly the British monarchy. So uh, I don't know, what, what can we call this? Relation, this this reaction can we call it a love hate relationship? I don't know. 
I don't know. However, uh, what might come as a surprise to many Americans and might come as a surprise to some of you this evening is that there is a theology of monarchy in the church, in the tradition of the church. Now, that is not to say that there is some sort of dogma or doctrine of monarchy in the church. But it is to say that of the many forms of government that have been tried, and none of them, that's why it's not, the reason why it's not a dogmatic matter is none of them will realize the kingdom of God on earth because all of them will come and go no matter what the form of government is. Now, from our vantage point, we might tend to be uh, uh, perhaps uh, speak in a rather superior tone about monarchy on the one hand. We might say, well, most people have outgrown that now. Most of the, most of the historical monarchies have passed away. Uh, and, and, and so that we might think that, oh, well, modern democracy, that's going to be the, the way for, for all of the foreseeable future. But we have to be, I think, uh, honest and say that our, our democracies are showing large cracks. And where will they end up? We don't know. Will they, will they end up on, excuse me for speaking so bluntly, on, on the trash heap of so many other things that get discarded throughout history? I don't know the answer to that. And I, as I said, I don't have strong opinions about it. However, uh, since it's my duty to, you know, uh, in, in terms of being a teacher of churchly things, uh, to objectively make people familiar with the various uh, theological trends that have existed in the history of the church. And certainly the only form of government that has had, that has claimed to have a theology to back it up in the history of, of, of the church is that of monarchy. Now, let's look at that from the general to the specific, because we're not speaking here simply of any old monarch. After all, uh, most, most nations have in the course of their history for some of the time, most of the time, a few of them even for all of the time had monarchies. But we are speaking here of one particular monarchy and that is the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire. The theology of the Roman Empire is found implicitly all through the New Testament, simply because it is regarded that our Lord Jesus Christ was born when he was and where he was, not by accident, but there is a certain, that expression, you know, in the fullness of time, fullness of time, God sent forth his son. The fathers of the church and the liturgical hymnography of the church is rather unanimous about proclaiming that the birth of our Lord in the Roman Empire, in the province of Palestine, in the first century AD, was directly an expression of the plan of God. And therefore, the Roman Empire is regarded as an instrument in the plan of God. If you want to have some uh, foundation for that, I would recommend to you to look at all, everything that's said about Roman, Roman military officers, especially centurions, there's, there's a few tribunes as well, uh, Roman law, Roman procedure, in the Gospel of St. Luke, the Acts of the Apostles, the writings of St. Paul and Peter, because there's many references to them. Every reference, save one general one, 
every reference to Roman soldiers in particular, in particular in the gospels, even though the Roman soldiers are the occupying, occupying force of Jewish Palestine is positive in the New Testament. Think of the centurion whose servant is healed by Jesus, who says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, speak the word only, my soul shall be healed in the Latin rite. Those are the words before communion adopted by the church. Jesus says of him, I've not found such faith as his nowhere in Israel. The, of that same centurion, it is said by the Jewish elders of Capernaum, he loves our nation and he built us our synagogue. And therefore, they're almost lecturing Jesus. You ought to do this for him, they say. He's good. And then we have the centurion at the cross. Remember that the centurion at the cross is the one who oversaw the whole process of the Lord's crucifixion to make sure it was done in, in the bloody and gruesome and finally fulfilled way that that agonizing form of death was done. And the Roman officer, when it's all done, what does he have to say? Truly, this man was the son of God. Then we have Cornelius the centurion in the Acts of the Apostles who is the first convert among the Gentiles, who is called a just, righteous, and holy man in the Acts of the Apostles. Then we have all of those centurions that are present when Paul is being arrested and tried and finally going on to Rome and enduring the shipwreck and everything. All, all of the Roman officers in charge of, of Paul the prisoner, it's, it's described that they treat him kindly. So we might expect that the Roman occupying army would be spoken of harshly, but they're not. In the, only, only one case when, when our Lord is being tortured before his passion, of course, it's the Roman soldiers that are doing that. But when they're spoken of in particular, they are not spoken of harshly. And quite the contrary. St. Paul and St. Peter both say that it is the will of God that you pay honor to the emperor. Because he rules. Who is the emperor when St. Paul and Peter, and Peter are writing? It's good old Nero. <laughs> who hasn't quite gone completely mad yet. When Nero came to the throne, people thought he was going to be really good. And only when the fire broke out that he's accused of starting, only after that did the persecution of Christians begin. It was later on in his reign. But nevertheless, that's the emperor that's, that's on the throne when Paul and Peter are speaking of, of the emperor is God's instrument. So there is that side of the imperial authority being an instrument of God. Now. I have to already, my time goes so fast in these talks. Uh, where, where do we go with that historically? Well, of course, that Roman imperial authority is what is Christianized under Constantine, rules in Constantinople for a millennium, is uh, finally overthrown by the, by the Ottoman Turks in 1453, just at the time when the Russian empire is emerging, and the royal house of Russia is, is marrying into the Roman Byzantine royal house. And uh, people, uh, people in Russia are feeling pretty pleased with themselves. And they're speaking of, Russia, of Moscow as the third Rome. Say the old Rome went, the new Rome went, now there's Moscow. That's the third one. There won't be another, people said. So again, whether one agrees with that or not, that is... A, an idea that, that was and is firmly accepted by a rather large number of Christians in the world. Now, scripturally, however, we must look at one particular passage, and then I want to give you some, some features from the life of the royal martyrs. That's about as far as we can get this evening. This uh, theology of, of the Roman Empire is, when the fathers speak of it, they often refer 
to a passage in the second chapter of the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. So second Thessalonians, second chapter, beginning at the first verse. That's what I'm going to read from. It's one of the most obscure passages in the New Testament. Very, very difficult to understand what Paul is talking about. So this is the passage. Not long. I'll read it to you. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word, or by letter purporting to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you this? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the, his appearing and his coming. And the passage goes on to say more about this lawless one. Now, that is identified by the fathers to be the same as the one who is, who is spoken of as the Antichrist in the writings of John in the letters of John in the, in the book of the apocalypse. So the, that the end will not come, says St. Paul, until this anti-God, anti-Christ figure is revealed. And the reason why he hasn't been revealed yet is that there's been a force, some kind of force restraining him. But that force will be taken away, says St. Paul. When that happens, then the lawless one will come. Now, Two examples of patristic exegesis of that passage. One from the Latin tradition, one from the Greek. This is from Tertullian. The first, the first of the Latin fathers, that is. The, the, Tertullian, the first of the fathers of the church to write in the Latin language. Third century. So he writes in his Apologia. There is also another even greater obligation for us to pray for the emperors. Yes, even for the continuance of the empire in general and for Roman interests. We realize that the tremendous force which is hanging over the whole world and the very end of the world with its threat of dreadful afflictions is arrested for a time by the continued existence of the Roman empire. This event we have no desire to experience and in and that means the meaning the end of the empire and in praying that it may be deferred we favor the continuance of the roman empire that's tertullian here is saint john chrysostom from the east one may naturally inquire what is that which restrains the man of lawlessness and in addition why paul expresses it so obscurely what then is it that holds back that is that hinders the revealing of the Antichrist. Some say, indeed, the grace of the Spirit, but others say the Roman Empire. I agree with the latter position. Why? Because if Paul meant to say the Spirit, he would have not spoken obscurely but plainly that even now the grace of the Spirit, that is the Spirit's gifts, hold back the Antichrist. If not, he should have come by now if his coming was to occur with the cessation of the gifts of the spirit. But because Paul said this of the Roman Empire, he merely touched the topic, understandably speaking, covertly and darkly. For he had no need to create unnecessary enemies and useless danger. So that is an example of how there is this theological tendency to regard the existence of the Roman Empire, which 
had one form before Constantine, another form from Constantine until the fall of Constantinople. And many would say a third form in Holy Russia. And when that last incarnation of the God-appointed Roman monarchy in this world came to an end that it was a sign that the end is near. So that's the theology behind this. Uh, and again, it's not a matter of doctrine or dogma, but it's something that's always been there. So the reason why the murder of the Romanov family, and notice the name of the family, Romanov, by the Bolshevik Soviets was seen as one more step of history coming closer and closer to its end. Now, another, another factor to be considered is why is it uh, now, I'm, I'm basing this comment simply on, on other writers because I don't have any, any personal experience of, of these, these events. But it is said that in Russia now, where there has been a tremendous explosion of, of restoration of the church, that at this time in Russia, the most venerated of Russian saints, and there's, there's you know, 800 years or more, or a thousand years rather, more than a thousand years of saints of the land of Rus. But at this time, the most venerated are these royal martyrs because they are seen as taking upon themselves the hatred of the church that the 20th century was so full of. Sometimes people will question treating the Romanov family, speaking of the Romanov family as martyrs, because for the same reasons that objections were made centuries ago, because some will object, they did not deny, they did not die directly in what is called in Latin, in odium fidei, because of the hatred of the faith. Or did they? Or did they? Why? Here, there need be no, no doubt of the piety and orthodoxy of the Romanov family. And, and by saying that, I do not, again, I, I, I want to impress upon you that I don't have uh, firm opinions about some aspects of this. But one does not have to agree with all of the policies of Tsarist Russian government in order to recognize the sanctity of the Romanov family. Uh, it is not necessary that the that the Romanov monarchs, the Romanov czars, should uh, have shown themselves to be in every way perfect rulers. No one has shown uh, themselves to be perfect rulers, uh, either before or now. But to give you an example, this is, uh, or or before I go on to the example because already we're running out of time. Uh, many people think that there's a kind of dark pall over the Tsar Nicholas and Tsarina Alexandra because of the Rasputin uh, affair, Grigory Rasputin, who uh, was certainly seems to have been a, a, dark, a dark character in those times. But in those times, he was regarded as, as a wandering stranik, a holy man, of which there were many in Russia. The reason why the Tsarina Alexandra turned to him is that two bishops told her to. She was, he was recommended to her by the bishops of the church. People thought he was genuine. It's possible to be faithful, pious, holy, and still be duped about something. Being saintly doesn't mean that one has a perfect understanding of people and events. So that being said, listen to uh, the prayer of the Tsarina Alexandra shortly before her death. Oh Lord, send us patience during these dark tumultuous days to stand the people's persecution and the tortures of our executioners. 
Give us strength, O God, so righteous to forgive our neighbor's wickedness and to greet the bloody heavy cross with your meekness. In these days of mutinous unrest, when our enemies rob us, Christ the Savior, help us bear insult and disgrace as you did. Lord of the world, God of the universe, bless us with prayer and grant peace to the humble soul in this unbearable and fearful hour. At the threshold of the grave, breathe a power that is beyond man into the lips of your servants to pray meekly for their enemies. Amen. Well, anyone who prays in that manner on the eve of their death is praying as Christ did from the cross. So uh, to that, in, in that sense, I think that there, that there is certainly no doubt that the royal family of Russia died as faithful Christians and as victims of the hatred of the church that came in many forms, not only the Marxist communist form, but in many other forms, the Nazis and so many others during the 20th century. More people killed in odium fidei in the 20th century than in the previous 19th centuries combined. So, it is, it is not surprising, it seems to me, that there should be great veneration of, of these martyrs and passion bearers, the royal family of, of the Russian Empire. And I, I, certainly, I certainly would express the opinion that there is, there is no need for, uh, for Catholics to, to think of this as some sort of strange phenomenon. There's nothing strange about it at all. It has existed in the church for uh, over a millennium. So uh, with that, I, I think I, I will, it's time for, to conclude. This is very much an introduction to this, to this fascinating topic. And thank you for, for, your, for your attention. I enjoyed presenting it to you. And why don't we go ahead and start with Jane. You can unmute yourself. Hi, um, I, I have a question. Maybe it's just a curiosity. Um, I just realized that the Russian revolution comes at the end, towards the end of World War One, and our ladies, um, apparitions of Fatima come like around the time that it, that began. Do you think any of the Russian people would have been able to have heard of Our Lady of Fatima at that point? Don't know. I have to be honest and say I don't know if nineteen seventeen, uh, which was for the for uh, the Russian Empire, was the worst part of World War One. Uh, that's when Tsar Nicholas abdicated, um, and and there was such a breakdown of society after after the revolution, the October Revolution. Um, it, uh, you you have to you have to uh, consider though it's it's that just as the the uh, Lenin was going back to to Russia for the for the October Revolution. That was the same month that the miracle of the sun occurred in Fatima. Yeah. But who but who heard of it in Russia? I don't know. I don't know. I, I there may be there may be uh, someone who has more detailed knowledge of the, of right. that period specifically, you know, uh, than I do, but I, I don't know the answer. I'm sorry. Thanks. It just seems oh I'm sorry. It just seems so uh, profound that our lady intervened in history at that point yes indeed and and i you know i would say that not that these things uh, as we would all say these things don't happen by accident or, or arbitrarily yeah, yeah. Thank, you. thank you so much jane for that question um father we have a question coming in uh, this person's asking were the romanovs known for their sanctity during their life as well or was it primarily their deaths um, that kind of prompted uh, their? That's death? a good question, and again, to my knowledge, both both by their lives and deaths, there there is no question that the the royal family, uh, the parents and the children, both both father and mother lived a close family life, even though they lived. Uh, surrounded by great opulence, the family themselves lived in, in if you read descriptions of it, lived in, in relative simplicity. Uh, there, the, the church services and daily prayers were uh, present continually on a, on a, a daily, daily basis. 
uh, the Tsarina Alexandra herself uh, uh, took upon herself the religious education of all the children. She did not, you know, entrust it to a servant or something like that. She did it herself. They had the example of, of their aunt, the Grand Duchess Elizabeth, who was ministering to the poorest of the poor, a kind of uh, Mother Teresa-like figure uh, with some, in some ways in in you know uh, Moscow of the of, and Saint Petersburg of the of the nineteen uh, first two decades of the of the twentieth century. So certainly they had all this all this example when when the great the great trial of of the family. Uh, first began to surface with uh, Tsarevich Alexis's hemophilia. Uh, uh, they, they turned to God for help. They, they you know, uh, yes, he was, yes, he was examined by physicians, but they entrusted him to God, that God would strengthen him, and hopefully that God would grant him healing. Um, the, uh, the description of the, uh, of the, again, the empress's uh, her her private room was that it was more like a chapel than a bedroom. So certainly there are there are these examples of there are there there is this uh, evidence of of consistent faith and piety. Again, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean faithful and pious people are not perfect in every way, but certainly the family life of the Romanov family was consistently a Christian life and could be identified as such. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Um, we have another question coming in from Adrian, particularly about the family themselves. She was wondering, what are we supposed to make of how pop culture has depicted the Romanovs? It seems odd that there's so much sensationalism around the saints. And she's thinking, um, as I probably would in people in my generation of the 90s cartoon film of Anastasia, just as one example. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's because of this this uh, story that that has gone on. Uh, again, I'm no expert on it, but I do know that there is there is no convincing evidence for this story that somehow the the princess Anastasia somehow survived the murders, and then was a uh, you know various various claimants to be Anastasia arose, but but that came after the fact, so one cannot one cannot transpose that back upon the royal family themselves. They were, they had passed from this world by then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Ior, do you have a, a question? Yes, I do. Yeah, um, thank you for inviting me. Um, I really enjoyed your talk, Father David. Um, one of the things that um, I was uh, thinking about is that um, the Russian uh, monarchy uh, from my understanding and reading the history is that the Russian monarchy has been persecuting many people within their empire, including the Ukrainians, of course, in within the territory for many centuries, even from the, I think there's a grandson of Volodymyr, um, who, Dohoruki, I believe, who uh, uh, organized the people around Muscovy and then came back and ransacked the cave back in 1240. So, and then I know Russians are trying to claim the history of the cave Rus. But the thing I was interested, or, or I understand what you're saying in terms of, you know, the uh, Romanovs um, at the end, they were uh, maybe pious. I mean, what you read was interesting that, you know, how they were des describing how they felt, but, and um, what the Bolsheviks did to them is, is terrible for sure, it was evil. But the Romanos, I just had a hard time believing that they were innocent, especially since they were persecuting a lot of people within their empire and the Ukrainians, as well as other subject, subjects within the empire. And yes. it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. God is wonderful. And then by actions, persecuting, killing, and so on. So I have difficulty in putting it I understand. Together. I understand. And that's why I made it. I tried to make it clear that. I think there is a difference between recognizing not just the piety but the fidelity of the last, the last of the Romanovs, with with a kind of endorsing of any particular regime, even theirs. I don't think that. I, I guess I, I guess 
that that my opinion is on this matter that uh, Nicholas and Alexandra and their children are not necessarily responsible for some of the actions of their parents and great and grandparents and great grandparents of that of that dynasty. Uh, no one no one is suggesting that that the uh, canonization of the Romanov martyrs is a canonization of of the policies of the Russian Empire in in any particular century or the policies of any other empire or any other nation for that matter. No, it's true, but yet they may not have. They could have said said to them that just like there are many children of the from the Nazi era leaders that not all of them, but some of them, maybe about half of them. There was an interesting story on in the internet where half of them actually said that what my parents did was wrong. You know, the, some of the Spear and other leaders in Nazi government and the, some of those children have said that, you know, denied that what their, you know, what their parents were doing was wrong. So similarly, you know, Nicholas Alexandra could have said what we, what my ancestors have done is wrong. They should not have been subjugating all these uh, people within our empire and they should be uh, provided with, uh, with the freedom. That that is perhaps the case. I'm not, I, you know, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. Uh, but they did However, do that. however, I, I I do think that there is there is an authentic. All all I meant to present in this talk tonight is an opinion of the authenticity of their martyrdom, and that's all. That's all. Uh, that doesn't mean that someone who dies authentically a martyr has necessarily been right about, about many other matters. You know, there's an interesting case in uh, some martyrs that were killed, I think it was during the period of the French Revolution, but I forget the name of the town, I forget the name of the martyrs, it wasn't in Paris wasn't uh, any of the uh, well-known ones. And, and the, the, the revolutionaries, you know, who claimed that the, the French monarchy had been not, done nothing but oppress the poor for centuries, uh, arrested all these priests who were all uh, uh, branded as being defenders of the monarchy. And it was interesting that one of those priest martyrs who remains steadfast and, and died confessing Christ and forgiving his executioners, was one who had not been a good priest. And one who had been an exemplary priest, in the end, renounced the faith. So that's why, and so it's that bad priest during his life who, who faithfully underwent his martyrdom that is enrolled among the saints of the church now. That's all, that's all I mean to suggest. Sure, you have a final conversion before death. That's sure, it's true. Yeah, although I, I would say, I would say for, uh, again, I'm not speaking of, of anyone besides the names I mentioned tonight, Nicholas and Alexandra and their children. It seems to me that the evidence points that in the life that they lived day by day, they did so as faithful Christians. That doesn't mean that their opinions, their policies were necessarily all either right or exemplary. That's all. Thank you so much, Father David, for that, for that explanation and clarification. I think we'll wrap up with this one question. We've had a number of people writing in, um, essentially with the same question. For those of us who are um, less familiar with the Eastern saints. So not just the Romanovs, but other saints venerated by the Eastern, our Eastern brothers. Do you have any reference materials or books or resources you would recommend for further study? There's, there's any number of books. I'm, I'm, I wanted to pull out some more things for, for this evening, but I was in a state of disarray. <laughs> uh, there's many things been written about the, uh, the Bolshevik martyrdom of of both not not just russians but ukrainians and and people in the carpathian mountains and, every, and everywhere else in eastern europe there's plenty written about it and i would just suggest find a a good historical source that that treats that period and and make and you know use it as best you can thank you would you be so kind as to close us in prayer of course 
The Father is our hope, the Son is our refuge, the Holy Spirit is our protector. All Holy Trinity, glory be to you. Beneath your protection, we take refuge, Virgin Theotokos. Do not despise our supplications in adversity, but deliver us from perils. Whoever glorious and blessed Virgin, God is with us through his grace and love for mankind, always, now, and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.